This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the world of the Monkey King, where you'll see why you shouldn't eat animals that wink at you, what monsters do on their weekly game night with friends, and how you can get a great deal on a new suit from your local tiger. All you need is immortality and a very heavy stick. The creature this week is a tall bird who's learned a lot from humans in the very worst way. This is Myths and Legends, episode 193A, Golden Cicada. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. The Monkey King. In this podcast, we've had so many awesome, funny characters like Gavain, Renard, who's getting more episodes too, by the way, Coyote, but by far my favorite is the Monkey King. Sun Wukong. He's a monkey who grew beyond his limits, who learned and gained supernatural powers to the point where he even challenged the heavens themselves and nearly won. He's powerful, funny, but with a mischievous, self-destructive streak that only makes the stories more interesting. Well, he's back. The last time we saw the Monkey King, over a year ago, the Buddha slammed a mountain down on him, trapping him for 500 years, when the Monkey King nearly took over the known universe. Those episodes were really just a prologue to a very famous, very long novel called Journey to the West, a Chinese novel published in the 1500s. We're going to dive into the main plot of the novel today, and pick up in the next chapter, though 500 years later, from where we left off, when a bodhisattva is given a task to find someone who will save the world. Oh, and real quickly, before we get into it, the term bodhisattva can have a lot of different meanings in Buddhism. But for today's episode, this one is kind of like a deity that held off on entering nirvana and who's committed to saving others. Bodhisattva looked at the mountain. The mountain. It had been 500 years since that day. Since the day Sun Wukong destroyed the peach banquet. Since he dared present himself as equal to heaven. Since he nearly proved himself correct. He had displayed his power, but he had fallen. He had been born a humble monkey, risen beyond anyone's hopes or expectations, and had fallen even farther when the Buddha dropped a mountain on the superpowered monkey to end his short-lived reign of terror. Hi, the bodhisattva heard from underneath the mountain. She stopped her exposition dump to her assistant. Yeah, yeah, hi, the voice called. I can hear you talking about all the stuff I did. Come on down here. Don't worry, I won't bite. I mean, I do and I would, but thanks to your boss, I literally can't move a muscle, so you're good. The bodhisattva shrugged and gestured to her assistant. Hours of setting aside the rubble, and a path was revealed. A path down into the darkness, down to one of the greatest threats and most powerful creatures the world had ever known. Sun Wukong was telling the truth, and the bodhisattva knew as much. And soon, she saw him, not a powerful commander, holding his own against the forces of heaven and earth, but a pitiful monkey, pinned to the ground under a stone box. You know you're the first person to visit me in 500 years? It's been 500 years, right? 
because each day down here feels like a year. So hold on, I'm going to do some quick math. Carry the two. That's, that's way too many years. That's what that is. Tell your boss, thanks for that. Anyway, what's a bodhisattva like you doing in a place like this? Wait, did you come to free me? Please tell me you came to free me. It's been so long. The bodhisattva said she didn't come to rescue him. That was just a stop on the way to her true mission. She was going east. The world was different from when Monkey roamed. Humanity had become stupid, lazy, lustful, and cruel. And this is... different? Monkey asked. But the bodhisattva continued. The Buddha and others took pity on the humans and crafted scriptures. Scriptures that would help them. Scriptures that would save them. She was going east. There was one, chosen by heaven, to be the scripture pilgrim. He would make the journey west, and get the scriptures, and save the people from themselves. It would be a dangerous, violent journey. So she was recruiting equally dangerous, violent allies along the way. Ah, you came to recruit me. Knew you couldn't get it done without the best, Monkey grinned. Grinning being just about all he could do under the power of the stone box. The Bodhisattva said no. Was he paying attention at all earlier? This was literally just to stop to watch him suffer a little bit. To watch justice being done. And she had. And she was going to head out now. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 the monkey said. Okay, <sighs> please, please, he needed help. He had been here for so long. He would do anything. You, the Bodhisattva stated bemused. You would help us. Your sinful karma is very deep. Like, the deepest? 182,500 years, the monkey replied. He had done the math. That's what 500 years had felt like to him. He knew the meaning of penitence now. He wasn't asking to be forgiven, only that he might know the path and walk it. Because if vice or virtue lacks reward, the universe itself must be unjust. The Bodhisattva smiled. Wow, Sun Wukong had been thinking. You know what? Sure, if he truly felt that way, there would be a road back for him. Monkey grinned. All right, that was awesome. She wouldn't regret this and wait, where was she going? The Bodhisattva said that she was going east to recruit the scripture pilgrim. The monkey said, yeah, they were going to do that together, right? The bodhisattva said that if monkey truly wanted to be better, he would start by being freed by and being under the command of a human. Oh, come on, monkey yelled. Or you could stay here for another 500 years. How many years would that make? 365,000? The monkey's eyes widened. She misunderstood him. He meant like... Oh, that's great. Come on and go get his new human master. He would be waiting because it was literally the only thing he could do. Chen Guangru was having a great month. A scholar, he had won the governorship by absolutely killing it at the exams. And during his parade, he met his wife, the beautiful daughter of a noble. Now, after swinging back by home, 
he was heading south to take on his new office. They stopped at the inn of 10,000 flowers, but didn't leave for three days, despite the urgency of Chen's posting. His mother fell ill, so they called for a doctor. In the meantime, they relaxed a bit. One night at dinner, though, something odd happened. As Chen picked out a fish for dinner, the fish winked at him. Immediately, the governor-to-be stood. Nope, he wouldn't be eating that. It was common knowledge that when a fish or snake blinks in this way, it's not an ordinary creature. The reason being not the least of which because snakes and fish don't have eyelids like that. He ordered the fish to be deposited back into the river from which it was caught. A 15-mile journey at night for the fisherman, so yeah, he was happy about that on his night off, but it was done, and Shem was happy. The mother wasn't getting any better, but she wasn't getting any worse, and while the son and daughter-in-law the daughter-in-law being named Lady Yin, were happy to stay. The mother didn't want her kid laid on his first day because of her. She told them to continue on. They could rent her a house and some servants to help her recover, and they could send someone back to get her in the fall. The son was loath to leave his sick mother, but agreed. They had to follow the emperor's decree. They set out the following morning, the mother comfortable in her rented house. They traveled on, just the three of them now. Chen, Lady Yin, and the family servant, until they came to a river. Standing at the river's edge, the two ferrymen waved down the couple. It was nearly nighttime, but they had spent years navigating the stretch. They would get the trio across and help them along to the inn. Despite his sick mother, Chen was crackling with excited energy. As they rode, he told the men about the examinations, about getting married to this beautiful woman, about how he was going to be governor in a province he had never seen and which had never seen him. So exciting. Life was wonderful. But he imagined that the two strangers agreed with him on that, he said. Being the renowned governor, being ferrymen who navigated the same stretch of river for years on end, they all had their roles to play in this wonderful adventure called life. Lu Hong, who sat in the front of the boat, told his fellow ferryman, Li Bao, that there was an unexpected current ahead. They should wait for it to pass. Bao nodded and turned the oar. Chen didn't know how he had been so blessed. In a matter of weeks, he had earned a governorship, met the woman of his dreams, and now he was on the way to a new life. It was all so unbelievably wonderful. Lady Yin looked back with a smile. One Chen had seen so many times in the past few weeks. They were still getting to know each other, but it felt like they had known each other for a lifetime. At the same instant that Lady Yin's smile disappeared, Chen heard a muffled scream from behind him. He turned in time to catch a few flecks of his servant's blood. The knife clattered to the bottom of the boat as Biao, the ferryman, quickly, methodically, picked up the oar. Chen was still frozen by what had happened to his servant when he caught the oar in the forehead and thudded against the bottom of the boat. The man at the back rose, lifted the oar, and continued, until the man at the front of the boat yelled at him to stop. Lady Yin saw what remained of her husband and knew what the men would demand of her. She turned, gripped the wooden edges of the boat, and flung herself toward the water. She never hit the water, though. She felt a ferryman's arm around her torso, pulling her back into the boat. She bit, she scratched, but he only told her that he would make things so much worse for her if she didn't calm down and that didn't include killing her. Lu Hong, 
at the front of the boat, told his friend to dump the body of the servant, strip the clothes from the scholar, and then do the same. They resumed rowing to the opposite shore. Hong tossed the fellow ferryman a tiny pouch of gold and then went back to scrubbing blood, Chen's clothes, with the river water. Biao asked what this was for, and Hong shrugged. His silence? For doing the dirty work back there? Biao flashed his rotten teeth as he scooped up the gold. It was his pleasure. Hong said his partner could have the boat, too. At that, Biao's eyes widened. What now? Hong smiled as he started to put on Chen's clothes. Both men were slender, Chen from his studies and singular focus, and Hong from hunger. He looked himself up and down. What now? Well, now, Hong said, as he pulled his new wife to him. Now, he was moving up in the world. They left the following morning, and as they walked, Lady Yim was allowed to take her bonds off. To Hong's surprise, she didn't try to run. She didn't try to throw herself off a precipice. She looked to the ground and continued on. She felt her abdomen. She couldn't run. Not now. He would catch her. And the previous couple days only confirmed what until then she only thought she knew. She was pregnant. She carried with her the only piece that still remained of the wonderful person she had loved. And she wouldn't risk that. Even for her own freedom. The interim ruler looked at Hong. The man certainly didn't look like he expected, but... uh, The interim ruler shrugged. The kid was a prodigy. He did know Lady Yin's parents. He had met the young woman once when she was a girl. She was silent, but she confirmed that this was Chen, her husband. That, combined with the emperor's seal, was good enough for him. He showed the couple to their new home. Meanwhile... In the river, a fish was swimming. Not unusual. It stopped when it found a large dark mass bobbing in the water. It's unfortunate when anyone dies, but this one looked like he had a hard time of it. Then, the fish paused. Wait! Chen blinked awake and screamed into the water. Lady Yin! The man in the back of the boat! He had to help his wife! It was then that he realized that he wasn't in the boat. He was in the river, and he was looking at his own dead body. He was in the dragon palace, the court of one of the dragon kings. The one who sat on the throne, the dragon man-fish, depending on what form he chose at the moment, looked down at the scholar. Did he remember the fish? The one from the inn? The one that blinked despite not having eyelids? Hey! The dragon king said that when he saw the man floating in the water, He couldn't just leave him. He couldn't repay good with evil. But Chen's body was too damaged. It needed healing. The Dragon King put a pearl of preservation in the man's mouth. And it would take some time. But with the talent of his healers, perhaps the scholar's soul could return to it soon. Until then, the Dragon Palace was his home. 
Chen looked up and sighed without breath. He hoped that, wherever Lady Yin was, she was okay. Months passed, and the baby grew inside Lady Yin until she couldn't hide it anymore. Hong, who was as shrewd as he was unscrupulous, had adapted to the role of governor and, honestly, wasn't terrible at the job. No reason to invite investigation with corruption and incompetence. He was a terrible person, though, and he could do basic math, and he told Yin that as soon as the child was born, she would be getting rid of it. It wasn't his, and he didn't want it around here. Now, if she would excuse him, he had to go on a weeks-long trip for business far from here. Almost as soon as he was gone, Yin gave birth. She had as much time with her son as she could, until the day Hong was to return. She knew the baby couldn't be here when he returned. And if she tried to find a home for the baby, well, the man was the governor. He would find the boy. So Lady Yin took him to the river. She penned a note with her own blood, explaining who she was and where she lived. And, gripping the baby and about to toss him bodily into the water, I guess praying that someone came within the next one to three minutes to rescue him, a plank with some rope floated by. As if the heavens were saying, Seriously? You were just going to toss a baby in the river? She fished the plank and the rope out and tied the baby on, tightening the knot around the note on the baby's chest. Lady Yin wept as the current carried the screaming baby off beyond her view. And then she heard a commotion back home. Her captor, the man posing as her husband, was home. Tears stung Zhuanzong's eyes. He had to go. Everyone knew of the baby that had been found in the river, of the young man, who had known the ways of the Buddha since birth, since he was raised by the monks. It was, honestly, he didn't notice it. He didn't think much of his childhood, until the other boys arrived. The leader of the monastery, who found the baby tied to a plank floating on the river, had seen the other boys, he had heard everything. Because of the tragedy of Zhuanzong's birth, he had the advantage that none of the other boys had. He had been steeped in the sutras since before he could read, and they hated him for it. So they attacked him the only way they knew, and day in and day out, they ridiculed him for being an orphan, and slowly, over the years, it wore him down. So, when he turned 18, the leader decided to show him the note, the one that his mother had penned with her blood and he watched the young man's face turn from sadness to something else. He told Zhuanzong to go, but keep the letter hidden. He was a monk, so he should go as a monk to the quarters of the governor. The man who lived there wasn't Zhuanzong's father, and he wasn't a good man. This way, Zhuanzong could just walk right in the front door. And he did. The lady of the house heard him calling for alms, and his look and the way he carried himself gave him away before he even had the chance to reveal the note that afternoon. He was the son of Chen and Lady Yen. He was her son. The woman hugged the young man, the baby she knew she would never see again, before gasping. The bandit, Hong, would be back. They couldn't talk here. He had countless spies and he controlled her every move. She would come for her son. She would come to the temple. Wait for her there. And she did come for him. 
the very next day, she became ill, and Hong came in to find her sitting up in bed. A dream. She had a dream. She said that when she was young, she had vowed to donate 100 monk shoes. The monks apparently heard that, and they were there to collect, in that she had a dream where a monk was holding her at knife point, demanding the shoes. It wasn't subtle, but it did the job. Hong said that he was the governor. He sent out a notice that morning demanding the donation of shoes, and by the afternoon, he had an entryway full of them. The next day, she was on her way down the river to the Golden Mountain Monastery. We'll see what happens with Lady Yin and her son, and yes, finally get back to the Monkey King, but that will be right after this. In the end, Hong didn't put up much of a fight. He was a bandit not a warrior, and Lady Yin moved quicker than he did. Xuanzang was sent first to the Inn of a Thousand Flowers, where, after 18 years of no payments coming from her governor's son, surprise, surprise, his grandmother had been evicted. In the intervening decades, she had gone blind and was now living out of a dilapidated shell of an abandoned house, begging in the street. Her grandson gave her money and put her up in a hotel, promising to pay her rent for real this time. He did too, and collected her when he came back at the head of an army. That army, led by his grandfather, quickly deposed Hong, the man who, yes, had stolen a political office, but as far as I can tell, didn't run it into the ground. Well, he was nailed to the back of a wooden donkey and paraded through the city until they decided to end his pain with way more pain by cutting him to pieces. The family wasn't quite as surprised as I was when Biao, his actual literal partner in crime, was found still working as a ferryman. I guess his friend never threw him a bone when he became fake governor. He was executed on the spot where he executed Chen. And the whole episode that started with an overly chatty governor-to-be taking a boat ride was finally over. And now, the weight of those events lifted. Lady Yin, her mother-in-law, and her son wept. For so long, they had been focused on surviving or revenge, that they never truly mourned Chen. Now, they could remember the man who had brought them all together, the wonderful soul who had died over 18 years ago, and who was now floating in the river right in front of them. Wait, Chen swam to shore, to his family, who couldn't quite believe it. How, how was this possible? Chen explained all about the Dragon King and why you should be observant when it came to picking out fish dinners. His body had been healing in the river for almost 20 years. And when his family killed Lu Bao, the Dragon King's power was fortified with a sacrifice and Chen's soul was allowed to return to his body and resume living. Weeping, the family embraced and they all headed south so Chen could finally take up that governorship that he earned all those years ago the mother went with him, since she finally had someone to take her. The son, after a long visit with the family he didn't know he had, returned to his temple 
and finished his studies. And Lady Yin, well, Lady Yin quietly killed herself. Because why? Why did that need to happen? I guess she said she felt so much shame about all those years and not doing anything that she felt like that was her only way. I wish it wasn't like that, but it did happen in the story. At this point, our story takes a bit of a detour. It is a long one. And if you're interested, it's going to be a member episode very soon. Because the long version took up most of the rest of this episode. Basically, the Tang Emperor, Taizong, an actual very important 6th century Chinese emperor, got pretty religious. Mainly because a disagreement with the Dragon King sickened him to death. And he went on a Dante Alighieri-style eternal scared straight program through the underworld. When he returned to life, he was a changed man. He ordered temples to be built. He commissioned monks to pray around the clock. He converted to a completely vegetarian diet and showed kindness even to convicted criminals, allowing them to return home and say goodbye and settle their affairs before being executed. He then declared that he would put together the biggest religious event of this lifetime, with 1,200 of the world's greatest monks to expound the sutras and worship the Buddha. Together, they would fling wide the gates of salvation, not just for the holy, but for everyone. Deliverance was at hand, and all the emperor needed was a leader. Then, Xuanzang got the call. In his time since riding back to depose his father's murderer, Xuanzang had only grown in virtue. Because of the horrible circumstances surrounding his birth, he had been raised in the faith. He had known the sutras even before he could read. And he had always been a vegetarian because of the tragedy he and his family had experienced. He had been prepared for the moment when he was chosen to be the grand expositor of the faith and the supreme vicar of the priests. It was at one of these meetings, the one with a thousand plus monks that a speaker, a pious man, who was expounding on the path to salvation, was given just a very scabby hug. He didn't even see them appear. They seemed to come from nowhere. But before he knew it, two scabby beggars were pawing at the speaker's robe, asking if he knew about the grand vehicle, the true path to salvation that lay in the West. The speaker shirked back at the scabs, but Xuanzang leapt forward. He didn't know if anyone else saw it, but come on, guys. This was an obvious supernatural test. He asked the speaker to step aside and gave the scabby beggars the anachronistic mic. The beggar said that even though the monks were wise, they still had so much left to learn. In the West, there was a way to save the world. These people were fumbling in the dark, while the West held the path to send the lost to paradise, deliver the afflicted, fashion ageless bodies, and break the cycles of coming and going. It was awkward. Some monks and nuns believed the people, some yelled for them to leave. The more secular authorities just straight up arrested them. But as they were leaving, the emperor spotted the face of one of the beggars and ordered them to stop. The person didn't bow when her emperor approached, but that didn't stop Taizong, who asked if the beggar knew the way to salvation and how they could obtain it. She smiled and breaking free, proceeded to just flex on the entire hall of monks who just seconds before, were glad to have her arrested. The, f- the human form of herself and her traveling companion burned away, and the hall saw the bodhisattva in all of her heavenly glory. Unsurprisingly, 
as a holy being floating above the crowd, they were a bit more receptive to what she had to say. And she didn't skimp on the show either. She summoned dragons and phoenixes and cockatoos, one of these things is not like the other, to circle around her, and a golden lotus to grow beneath her feet as she continued, saying that in the West, in India, in the thunderclap temple, there were books, books that could do everything she had said, send the lost to paradise, deliver the afflicted, make indestructible bodies, break the cycles of coming and going, and so forth. But there was a catch. Someone had to go get them. The room, which had only moments ago been going wild with chants about the bodhisattva, went quiet. Oh, the West. The road west, even inside the dominion of the Tang Emperor. It was a land filled with tigers, leopards, and all kinds of monsters. And not just the dangers of this earth, but demons and beings of near limitless power that had been cast out of heaven, for whom the underworld had no power to hold. The hall was silent, pulsing with anticipation and destiny. And then, one monk, out of over a thousand, one monk stood. It was him, Zhuanzong. Standing there, in this quiet room, he could see now, he could see how the tragedy of his parents, the strange, dark path in which the emperor had been led, how every heartbreak and triumph had led him here, to this moment, he accepted the call. He would save his people. He would retrieve the scriptures, knowing that for some reason, hell itself waited for him if he failed. He would go into the West. For getting a cloak and staff from a bodhisattva, and becoming a sworn brother to the emperor himself, you wouldn't know Zhuanzong if you saw him on the road with his two attendants. He was a monk, a traveler, a pilgrim, and now he was in trouble. It had started that morning. Excited for his journey, he had left the inn before the rooster crowed, and about an hour later, realized that that was a terrible idea when he and his two attendants were trying to pick their way through a foggy field, having lost the trail nearly as soon as they had gotten on it. And just as they wondered if they should try to head back or wait a little bit until it got more light so they didn't fall into a trap, they fell into a trap. Zhuanzong put his foot down and instead of coming to rest on top of the thick grass, it went through the not-so-thick grass. He, his horse, and his two attendants tumbled headlong into the dark. Claude Hand made a fist when he awoke. A warning, but then it continued tying him. Demons. The light filtering in from above, Zhuanzong looked to his attendants and shuddered. One of them was dead already. He hoped that the man died in the fall, that it was quick. The demons feasting on him wouldn't have cared to make it quick otherwise. His horse was dead, broken neck the other attendant was weeping. Zhuanzong, Zhuanzong breathed. He couldn't believe that his quest would be over so soon, but if that was the will of the gods, so be it. One of the demons slung him over his shoulder, and the pack started off on their trek to go see the monster king, 
the mountain. In the palace of the monster king, the monster's eyes glowed as he took the axe from his servant. Xuanzang caught a flash of his teeth, protruding up in a very stereotypical monster fashion as the axe blade came down on the head of the hero, ending his journey before he left the territory of the Tang Emperor. The monster king looked down. Huh, well how about that? Xuanzang couldn't help but wince. He opened his eyes to see the dented axe and the very confused monster king. Oh, yeah, you're right. Can't hurt this guy, the monster king said, slapping Zhuangzong in the face a few times. It was like slapping a slab of iron. Zhuangzong couldn't feel a thing. The monster king said whatever it was, it could wait for tomorrow. His buddies were over, and he promised them human. Just get the other one. They brought the axe down with a little extra gusto on the other monk captive. In the event that he was protected, he was not. They cut him loose and took him to the kitchen because this human wasn't going to brine himself. A couple floors up, Xuanzang heard the monster king laughing with his two buddies, Bear Mountain Lord and Steer Hermit, as they both ate the other attendant. Xuanzang, while happy for the monster king that he had an active and fulfilling social circle, mourned both of his friends and that he would never be able to complete his quest. Since as soon as they figured out it was the Bodhisattva's cloak that gave him the power to withstand their blows, they would strip him down and make him into a tasteful brunch for the following morning. Or they would have, while the rest of the monsters were sleeping it off that night. Zhuanzong lay awake, trying not to worry about the following day. Then a light grew in the darkness, where Zhuanzong noted two things. One, he didn't need to see the Monster King's murder room in full light. And two, it emanated from an old man who had just walked past all the guards to find Zhuanzong in the dungeon. Who are you? The monk managed, when the man leaned over him and, with the flick of his wrist, severed all the ropes. It said he blew on the monk to calm him down. Oh, I don't know. You were just the darling of heaven and the emperor, and night two, you get captured. I'm not saying this is a deus ex machina thing, but this is a deus ex machina thing. You need help, the mystical old man said, as he helped the monk to his feet. Xuanzang said that he had two attendants, and the proto-Obi-Wan arched his eyebrows. Oh, those two guys? He could go get them, but Xuanzang might want to grab a bag or something, because they weren't going to be too much use now. Before Xuanzang knew it, they were back on the road, with a fresh new mulligan horse, with all of his stuff. The old man pointed up the road. That way led to the mountains, and to the border of the Tang Empire. Xuanzang breathed. It was sad about his friends, but he was glad to be back on the safety of the road. Oh, I didn't say that. Bye, the mystical old man shouted and slapped the horse in the rear. Xuanzang took off in the night toward the mountain. True to the foreboding comments, it wasn't a week until Xuanzang found himself on a mountain path, only wide enough for his horse, with serpents chasing them up the mountains and into the tigers up ahead. Xuanzang winced and he opened his eyes with enough time to see the tigers that couldn't escape the arrows behind them, tumbling from the mountain. Xuanzang had never killed an animal, and he was a monk, so he should have had opinions on the hunting and all that. But he was also very glad when the hunter, 
also had a trident for some reason, cleared a path and grabbed his horse's reins. That night, he met the hunter that lived on the mountain, Bakwan, along with his wife, mother, and several of his children, slash maybe servants. Maybe there's not a difference? And the next day, the father and sons, slash servants, guided Zhuanzong to the edge of the Tang Empire, to the mountain range that served as the border, and to one mountain in particular. It was called the Mountain of Two Frontiers, but it used to go by another name, Old Ape. Zhuanzong cocked his head as they approached the mountain. Why Old Ape? Master! Master! They heard from inside the mountain. It boomed all around them, and it was so loud that the trident-wielding hunter shook. They all looked at Zhuanzong, who threw up his hands. What? He didn't know. His whole plan was go west, and he's already needed to be bailed out twice. Regardless, they should go check out the source of that voice. Master, there you are. The scripture pilgrim headed west. Can't wait to help you. She told you, right? The bodhisattva? She didn't? Seems like an oversight. Well, I'm your new best friend. The monkey king stood there, chained in the dark, illuminated by the lanterns that the child servants carried. He had been down in the darkness for so long that a mossy beard hung from his face. The mossy beard that the hunter guardian, Bakwin, took liberty to shave with his trident. The monkey said that it was heaven's will that he join the scripture pilgrim. So, how about it? How about letting him go? There was a seal on the top of the mountain. If that's lifted, he can go. As the party walked back out, Zhuanzong asked what the monkey king was in for, to which the children replied that he had betrayed pretty much everyone and everything up to the Buddha himself out of his own selfishness. So I should absolutely take him at his word, then. Yes! You should take me at my word, they heard. I'm hearing all this, by the way. I'm an immortal monkey king. The family said that all this was above their pay grade. Xuanzang needed to take it up with the gods. So, Xuanzang did. He prayed toward the west, that if he was supposed to lift the seal, that it would come away easily. But if he wasn't, he couldn't lift it no matter how much effort he put into it. He rose, and the golden seal came up without resistance evaporating on the wind. The monkey king was supposed to aid him on his journey to the west, and after 500 years, Sun Wukong was free. All right, everyone step back, they heard from below. The party cleared the summit. <laughs> no, 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 you're going to want to get farther back than that, they heard. They went to the foot of the mountain, still too close, among the foothills. Were they joking now? Finally, when they were six miles away from the mountain, they heard an okay. That's good. All right, watch this. The top of the mountain exploded as a small, furry blur shot into the sky among the boulders. It turned and started coming toward them. And in an instant, the ground shook with a slam. When the dust cleared, the Monkey King was among them. And superhero landing. Still got it, the Monkey King said rising. Was that necessary? You could have just come out the way we went in and saved us like a six-mile walk, the hunter father asked the monkey king. Is your trident necessary? 
You're a guardian spirit of the mountains. Pick a theme, the Monkey King noted. He looked at Xuanzang. They good? They going? They were going. The Monkey King turned to the hunter. He said the monk had the Monkey King now. He didn't need a trident-wielding hunter. You're not even wearing pants, the hunter said to the Monkey King as he rolled his eyes. But really, his leg of the trip was over. He couldn't go beyond the mountains anyway. And like Tom Bombadil, he had his own region to look after. The Monkey King looked down. Huh, yeah. Turned out that completely necessary, and then he paused to look at the hunter family, that completely necessary super jump obliterated his clothes. Oh well, he will grab more on the road. They only have one horse, right? The Monkey King asked as he shimmied in behind Xuanzang, naked. All right, onward we go. Hey, hey, master. Hey, master. Stop here. I want to talk to this guy. He has clothes for me. Sun Wukong, the Monkey King, said, slapping Xuanzang's shoulder. That's, that's a snarling tiger, Xuanzang noted. They were outside the border of the Tang Emperor now. No free hotel rooms and armed escorts. All bets were off. And the Monkey King was riding naked behind Xuanzang. Xuanzang understood that heaven wanted him there, but after, what was it, the equivalent of 182,000 years by yourself in a cave? The guy's social skills could use some work. And as someone saying this in 2020 who hasn't left the house in six months, I get that. He was curious about how the tiger could possibly be holding on to Sun Wukong's clothes. So he stopped the horse long enough for the Monkey King to jump off and then got to a safe distance to watch the conversation. The conversation, it seemed, quickly deteriorated and Xuanzang was starting to wonder if Sun Wukong even spoke tiger. He didn't, of course, but it wasn't hard to see what was on the tiger's mind. When the Monkey King brought his impossibly heavy staff down on the tiger's head and split it open. If you recall from the Monkey King episodes a while back, the Monkey King has a magical staff that can change size and density at will. It can be small and light enough for Sun Wukong to hide behind his ear, or heavy and long enough to take down gods. In short, it was long enough to take out a tiger. Zhuanzong screamed, and seeing way more tiger brain than he ever wanted to, said that he didn't think the tiger had Sun Wukong's clothes. The Monkey King picked out a few of his own hairs. Oh, the tiger had his clothes. As his hairs turned into knives, he said that the tiger was the clothes. After Sun Wukong wrapped the bloody skin around his waist and climbed back on the horse, he pointed down the road. All right, they needed to find someone with a needle and thread. He wanted to make some clothes. And he did. They found a kind family who let the monk and the naked bloody monkey stay with them. And a night of work later, the monkey king had a new suit a suit that, later on that day, the kings of the highway were laughing at. They held spears and short swords, blades and bows, and they wanted cash for safe passage through their lands. Xuanzang sighed. Well, okay, this was an obvious shakedown. What? The monkey king protested. No, they're the kings of the highway. What kings let an illustrious monk and his pilgrim servant pass through unaided? They would be fine. Monkey was just going to get some provisions from them. Zhuanzong said that they demanded the horse and all the pair's money, 
they were obviously being robbed. Okay, just whatever. Let me handle this, Sun Wukong said, and leapt from the horse. Three minutes later, the six men were dead, and Sun Wukong was wiping off his staff. Why did you do that? Zhuanzong screamed. Sun Wukong just killed six men. Who were gonna kill you? Do you not understand how this works? Zhuanzong observed that even if the six men killed him, it would only have been one. Now there were six deaths. Zhuanzong moved the ants out of harm's way when he swept the floor. He put shades on the lamps so the moths didn't burn themselves. He would rather die than practice violence. The Monkey King could have chased them off. Oh, what, so they can keep on robbing people next week? The Monkey King asked. I bet he would just put Joker back in Arkham Asylum, too. Zhuanzong shook his head. This was unconscionable. This was why he was under the mountain for 500 years. He couldn't kill people like this if he wanted redemption. Maybe Sun Wukong couldn't be redeemed. Maybe he belonged under that mountain. Sun Wukong looked down. Well, maybe the monk was right. But, as a counterpoint, bye. With that, he leapt up in the air and disappeared into the forest. Wait, what about the western heaven? What about the, the books and your redemption? Zhuanzong screamed. Can't stop me. And they could barely stop me before. Good luck on your quest, but know that I deeply do not care. Bye forever, Zhuanzong heard from the trees, before finding himself alone, once again, on the road west. Next week, we'll finish up this round of the Monkey King episodes, as, surprise, surprise, Sun Wukong rejoins the party, but with a little bit more of a restriction, and they meet more companions, with stories as bizarre and as comical as the Monkey King. The creature this week is the Tripodero, a fearsome critter from North America. The Tripodero is what happens when birds learn, the creature saw hunters using rifles to take aim at birds and thought, yeah, yeah, I could get into that. Not to stop the hunters, of course, but to shoot and eat other birds, because nature is horrifying. And the Tripodero was in a great position to do so, because like the Monkey King's staff, its legs can shrink to the size of robins or extend to the heights of small trees. So while hunting birds, the Tripodero will just well, meander along the ground until it sees its target and then retreat. I don't need to tell you this, but if you see a bird with what looks like a scope strapped to its beak, quickly rising from the grass on what look like stilts, get out of the way. It almost never comes after humans though, and throughout the day, it will scoop up clay pellets, form them, and leave them to harden in the sunlight, only stuffing them in its cheeks when it's ready to hunt. When it eyes its prey and extends its legs, it will load a shot into its mouth, look through the scope, and spit. It said that the Tropadero nearly never misses, though it doesn't actually kill its prey with its beak bullets, just knock them unconscious, so it can enjoy its meal slowly and alive. I'd say that the Tropadero's superpower is not its legs, its uncanny knowledge of projectile trajectories, or its ability to find and tie a scope onto its own beak. But the fact that it manages to spit clay bullets 
without any lips. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Magoosh for sponsoring us this week. Magoosh is an online test prep that provides students with the flexibility to study from home with tons of practice questions, study schedules, video lessons, and free apps. Plans are affordable, and Magoosh offers a score improvement guarantee. If you don't improve, you'll get your money back. Visit magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H, and enter the promo code MYTHS for a 20% off discount. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.